You are listening to Hashtag Lead a Podcast, hosted by author, speaker, and coach Jeff Connor. He invites you each week as he has conversations to discover how others are using love to change the world. Listen in and find what inspires love within you so you can go out and share it with the world. Remember, love is the answer. I have a dream today. Holy cow. Is it hot out there or what? This has been one hot start to summer. I can't remember the last time I had this hot of a start to summer. Anyways, I kind of am digging it, but not everybody I know is. Uh, But welcome. Welcome to the second episode of the second season of the Hashtag Lita Love is the Answer podcast. My name is Jeff Connor, and I'm your host on the Hashtag Lita podcast. And I'm just excited that you were able to tune in and join me this week. So this week's guest is Gigi Langer, author of 50 Ways to Worry Less Now, Reject Negative Thinking to Find Peace, Clarity, and Connection. She holds a PhD in psychological studies and education, and she has 34 years of sobriety herself. Gigi and I, we have an extremely fun conversation, and we talk about things like self-awareness, how to worry less, and how by believing our own whispered lies, we are cutting off our own potential. We have a really broad and wide-ranging conversation, and it covers things like alcohol abuse, marijuana abuse, sex addictions, uh, multiple marriages. No topics seem to be off-limit in this uh, conversation of ours. We also start to discuss some things like energy healing. This is a new topic that I've really been turned on to recently, and I'm really having a lot of fun investigating things like Reiki and tapping and Uh, acupuncture and massage and how those types of healing modalities really interact with the energy in our body, uh, the energy outside of our body and can lead to a lot of healing. Uh, We also get into uh, some of Katie Byron and the work that she has. There's some links in the show note that you can go to her website, but really cool stuff that Katie puts out there on, you know, Katie's belief is that suffering is optional. And uh, suffering comes about from believing the stories that we tell ourselves, believing those thoughts that we have running through our head. And uh, she has a great technique for really questioning those and doing some inquiry on, is it really true what we're telling ourselves? So it's a lot of fun. We really had a great conversation and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. So without any further delay, let's get her going. Today, my guest is Gigi Langer. Gigi, welcome to the Hashtag Lita podcast. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you, Jeff. My pleasure. I have been looking forward to this. We've been scheduled for this for probably, oh, a month and a half or so, I suppose. Yeah. Um, So I've really been looking forward to it. You are the author of, and I think I've got it right here, 50 Ways to Worry Less Now. Right. (laughs) <laughs> and so we're going to talk a little bit about that, and I'm sure you'll you'll be able to give me lots of pointers on how I can worry less. Um, and you've got a fascinating story, and so let's just dive in. I'll start out. I ask the million dollar question every time. You know, what's love got to do with it? What what has brought you onto a podcast where the theme is love is the answer? <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I always hear Tina Turner say. <laughs> What's love got to do with it? (laughs) And, you know, as you and I both know, love has everything to do with it. Because it, you know, I mean, all the trite things that people say about love makes the world go round, et cetera, et cetera. But um, it is loving care. 
not the romantic love that we're talking about when we say love is the answer. And um, I wanted to share just a little bit about how I came to discover myself that the things I was doing in my life were blocking love. And so I couldn't um, share love. I couldn't receive love. My, in a way, my love mechanism was all broken. And um, just like so many of us, it started, you know, growing up in an alcoholic home or it could even, um, you know, this feeling of I'm not lovable and love can't be relied on is, is, uh, is installed in our beliefs in so many different ways. And of course the, the dysfunctional family is one way, but it, you know, it could be a, um, a teacher who uh, called you stupid or an aunt or an uncle or sisters, um, you know, traumatizing you. There are so many ways that we end up thinking, uh-oh, the world is not a safe place for me. And whatever they're talking about with this love thing, I can't rely on it. Um, so for me, you know, it was uh, that my dad was a high functioning alcoholic. Well, as we know that runs in families, but it was a little mysterious for me to, um, realize or admit that I had a problem because I didn't drink constantly like the typical image of a quote alcoholic. I, um, you know, I didn't even drink that much in high school or college, but the few times I did, I did crazy things, you know, going to a hotel room with my boyfriend's fraternity brother, you know, just, and I didn't do it a lot, you know, and then I would drink and get so I became um, very leery of drinking, uh, but I discovered marijuana <laughs> and marijuana was just the thing to take away my feelings, especially after my first marriage where I um, fell in love very quickly and uh, was very, you know, straight, didn't, you know, had a very, mm. and others like something more relaxing. So I tend to run tight. You know, I'm more highly strung, highly sensitive. So when I used marijuana, it relaxed me, made me less serious. But what I did not realize after I started using it all the time was that the times when I was not using it, I was depressed. And I never linked the use of marijuana with the depression because the depression was happening when I wasn't actually high. Later, we come to know that, you know, it is associated with depression. I Let me just say this about whether a person, quote, has a problem or not. People who can have two drinks a night or one or two tokes, you know, in the evening to relax, that's one thing. You know, it, for me, when I realized that I was using it so that I didn't have to deal with what had happened in my life. So I didn't learn how to deal with um, rejection in, you know, professional rejection. I would just get high and then I never had to grow up and learn to deal with it. Or my perfectionism, I would just get high. So I never had to um, examine underneath the perfectionism what was, what was the problem, which, you know, when you're getting high a lot, through whatever means, even, um, you know, over shopping, overeating, sexing, a lot of those things, it's, it's really a very personal question. Am I using this not to feel 
am I using this not to have to deal with my problems, you know? So I think that's all I'll say about that. I hope I answered your question. Yeah, no, I think that that, and that brings up a cool and a, a, well, an interesting distinction too. There's two things that I think about there. One is, um, the ability, like I, I have, I was a smoker for 18 years from the time I was 18 till I was 36. I was anywhere from a pack to two packs a day. And I quit back in 2007. I know to this day, you know, what is it now? 13 years later, that if I were to smoke one cigarette, it would probably be a very slippery slope for me. And because I was, I just became very addicted to the nicotine and the smoking habit. Um, but I have friends who can, you know, smoke one or two, you know, a day and never more than that, or they can smoke, you know, a pack at a party and never smoke any time in between. And I, th you know, I think we hear this the same with people who some people can drink and have alcoholic beverages and limit it to one or two a day, or even sometimes, you know, even having, you know, more than that, um, to the point where they're, they're intoxicated, but not kind of get out of control. And some people like, it, it sounds like you described more of a binge drinker, um, where you would, you could go periods of time. My, my ex-wife, my, she, the mother of my children, that's the way she was. She could go months sometimes without having a drink, but boy, once she took that first drink of the night, it was, it, it wasn't going to stop until she either ran out and I wouldn't go get her more or she passed out. Those were the two options once she had that first right. drink. Yeah. Uh, that's so I think, how my mother was. Yeah. My <laughs> mother was that. <laughs> yeah. And so it is, I mean, I think, and each it, it's individual. One of the things I did for my own life, like with alcohol um, and even, you know, a, occasional recreational use of marijuana is I made the decision that I won't take it to mask or cover. So if I'm in a down mood, I will not drink mm -hmm. alcohol or I won't, I won't um, partake it in, in any marijuana use at that time. But mm -hmm. sometimes, so, and my commitment was, um, but if I'm in an up mood and I just kind of want to keep that elevated, then mm -hmm. I don't know if that's a, a good strategy or not, but it seems to be working for me and it keeps me from having those, um, you know, the depressive parts of alcohol and marijuana then don't seem to um, come bubble up to the surface when I do that, as long as I s start from a good frame of reference. Yeah, that's a good point. It's, and you've done a lot of self-exploration and spiritual growth and you know growth in your life and so the whatever use of substances you have has not shut down that uh, what I would call a connection with love and you know I'll fast forward to how I figured out that I had a drinking problem and had to stop but I I, I really want to talk about rediscovering this center of love within ourselves um, I ended up, the second marriage uh, didn't work, and um, it was kind of a contract marriage, so that's when I uh, started using more, and uh, he didn't have a problem with that, and, and then my third marriage, <laughs> I always fell in love really fast, you know, and I, and I often joke that um, I don't have any grandchildren because I couldn't stay married long enough. <laughs> But um, these divorces did hurt, but they also uh, got me out of situations that I couldn't handle because I hadn't really grown up emotionally. 
And so by the time I was 38, I'm looking at my third marriage. I'm in my third marriage. I have a brand new PhD in one hand from Stanford University. And in the other hand, I'm in my third marriage. And within nine months, he's traveling and I go out to a bar and pick up a stranger and find marijuana and go home with him. So after doing this a few times, I went running to a psychologist and I said, what the hell is wrong with this picture? You know, how could this? And I had a good job at a university in Michigan. And, you know, I, and yet I had this seedy little private life and the disparity was really tearing me apart. So um, the first thing he did was, you know, get my family history. He said, you're in the early stages of alcoholism. And if you want to know if you have a problem, try having two drinks, no more, no less. Um, and even though marijuana was my drug of choice, he said, uh, you know, I mean, you could have one toke or one, you know, puff or two and count that as a drink. But the point is, have two drinks or don't, but don't have any more than two drinks. And then watch what you do. Watch your behavior. So after six months of doing that experiment, I realized that when I had two drinks, sometimes I would stop and act just like a healthy social drinker. Other times I would have the third drink, the fourth drink, go find the marijuana, get the man and, you know, do something really dangerous. So I had to uh, discover for myself and I think each of us, it's a very private journey, that if I had even one drink or drug, I couldn't count on myself to take good care of myself. And I also risked putting other people at danger. And I was grossing myself out. I couldn't stand how I felt about myself inside, which, you know, once I got, I did go to a 12-step program because this was in 1986. And I was, you know, in my late, late 30s, and uh, that's what helped people give up marijuana and alcohol. Um, and in those days, they talked mostly about alcohol, but really, I didn't see any big difference. You know, I was using a substance to not deal with life, and I had to learn how to deal with life. <laughs> and I found the 12 steps and therapy um, really, really helped me uh, reconnect or find the, the loving center of myself. So going to your theme, love is the answer. If you, you know, the listeners and you, Jeff, imagine a, an image of a, I'm going to say a woman in this case, but it could be a man. And, um, you know, it's like a stick figure, but inside there's a, there's a heart. And you see the heart at the center of this person. And then you see all these rocks and gunky stuff kind of covering it up and blocking it from being able to receive or give love. So love is in the center of us, I believe. Love is the truth of who we are. But through our life experiences, we have created beliefs and trauma and other um, negativity to cover up and block the flow of love into and out of us. Mm. So if we, and I do believe that the center of ourselves, this, this heart, that's the image is um, you can call it the true self. You can call it loving power. You can call it God. You can call it the Holy spirit, peace, mind, 
Um, there are many, many ways to call it, whether you see it outside of you or inside. It is a force for goodness that will come to become our um, go-to place for guidance and answers and comfort. And, and also it will um, allow us to receive love into that place and to give love from that place. So what blocks our, <laughs> our um, love? What are all those you know, rocks and gunky things blocking the flow? And I think a lot of people would agree that it, it could be called the ego or the self-centered, fearful self. You know, if you think you have a, a God self or a good self or a true self, that's a source of love. But then you have all these other things that have blocked it. And one way of calling that is ego, which in Alcoholics Anonymous, they say ease God out, E-G-O, or ease goodness out. Mm. So how do we define ego? Um, you know, and, and a lot of my learning is from 12 steps and it, it's one reason I wrote the book because I think there's so many tools we learn in 12-step programs that can be helpful to anybody. But a lot of what I've learned is also through my own personal challenges um, with trauma, perfectionism, codependency, chronic pain. So those things all happened after I got sober. And then I had to learn tools for helping myself, for nurturing myself, for accessing my best self to help me through those things instead of just um, numbing myself through them with alcohol or drugs or, or men. So um, the ego, it's, it's really, I think, a spiritual journey or a journey of finding our true selves or our loving selves could be um, phrased as ego deflation we're going to lower the influence of our fear-based self and we're going to increase the influence and access to our love-based self. So ego can be defined, and I'll give you examples from my own life. A metaphor I use in the book is that the ego is whispering to us all the time. And if any of the listeners have read um, A Return to Love by Marianne Williamson, um, you'll recognize some of the language from A Course in Miracles, which is my main spiritual uh, study. And so in that uh, framework, and also the 12-step framework and many other writings of um, wisdom traditions, the, the ego is composed of fear. So what was my fear? Well, growing up in an alcoholic family, being the youngest and in the chaos, I felt that I was not lovable. Nobody had time for me. I wasn't worth anybody's love. So the whispered lie was, you're not lovable. So how did that drive me? Well, I kept seeking love, romantic love with men and trying to use that to fill up my heart, but it was a fallible human love. It wasn't the true <laughs> um, spiritual love or uh, perennial love that that is at the base of each of us so it was like a, a substitute and it 
you know, human beings, men were fallible and I was fallible and they, they didn't um, get rid of that whispered lie. Well, you're, you know, the only way you can be loved is by a man and if you're romantically involved. So that kept crashing and burning. So that was one of many fears. Um, and is that just, sure? I just wanted to confirm real quick, you know, the, the alcohol and marijuana use, is that a way to silence those whispers? Exactly. Yep. Okay. So, you know, when we're using substances, we can't really be very self-aware. And, you know, one of the first stages of becoming self-aware is realizing how shitty our talk is to ourselves, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> how these whispered lies are awful. You know, I've been working on this from on my own self, developing the self-awareness for years now. And it's just been in the last several months where I finally realized, nah, maybe a little longer now, maybe the last year or so, where I finally realized that I think one of the big problems, even as you become self-aware, is you still can believe those whispered lies yes. and believe that they are you and that that's mm -hmm. you creating those. I think you even talk about that in the in the book, how um, you've got kind of two dialogues kind of going on at the same time. Yep. Um, you know, the as the observer maybe versus um, the thinker. Yep. It's an insidious thing because I think it's a journey to become self-aware, but I think a lot of people are self-aware and then use it as an excuse to remain in this victim mentality. For example, um, I could have said, and I did often, oh, I grew up in a family where my dad was never there and my mom was worried all the time and I was the youngest and no one had time for me. So no wonder I don't feel good about myself. So that's the kind of self-awareness that doesn't go anywhere. Yeah, that's just I mean, the way I am. There's yeah. no, no, no point in trying to be different because right. this is just the way I'm, I'm made and yeah. who I am. Yeah. Right. However, it is a starting place if you decide to do something about it. And that, that's really why I wrote the book because there are 50 techniques that people can use to uh, reprogram their whispered lies and, and access the love within themselves. So I'm going to go back to what blocks it because fear is one of the major ones, but there's also resentments. Well, if they hadn't done that, I would be fine. You know, the blame game. And that's another of ego's ploys to keep us away from love. I don't think it's that deliberate, but it, it does block love, those kinds of beliefs. And in 12-step um, programs, they say resentments is, are the number one offender of our um, spiritual or, or loving fitness. Um, there's also um, self-centeredness. So I was using those men to feel better about myself. I wasn't interested in helping anyone else. You know, the whispered lie was, and I wasn't even aware of it because of the self-deception uh but self-centered people are only out for themselves and we know what that looks like and sounds like even on ourselves and then um dishonesty we fool ourselves that's the thing even with the self-awareness we can be dishonest with ourselves about the fact that we have a choice whether we want to continue this way but if we don't examine our motives like i was getting those guys to fall in love with me because my motive was to feel better about myself. You know, if we don't look at our fear, our resentments, our self-centeredness, our dishonesty, um, it's pretty hard. Those are the things that are blocking that flow of love into 
and out of us. I, I want to kind of ask you about that too. You said, and just kind of said it again, you know, the ego blocks love. Mm-hmm. Why, why do you think our ego is set up that way to block love? So it's blocking it through fear uh, resentment slash blame, self-centeredness, and dishonesty were the four examples you gave. Mm-hmm. Those sound like they probably are the stones that mm-hmm. are, you know, covering our heart. Why does the ego feel the need to block love? I'm curious what, mm-hmm. I have my own mm-hmm. thoughts, but I'm curious what your thoughts would be on that. Yeah. You know, that's one of those high metaphysical <laughs> questions. Yeah. I heard someone say once, why is not a spiritual question. Um, I, I tend to go on the path of, um, of awareness of my human perceptions. This is kind of from A Course in Miracles also, and not the only place that says it, but uh, the book, The Shack, which is one of my favorite books in regular story, it tells um, about really uncovering those blocks to love. Uh, And there's a scene in there where there's uh, uh, this being saying, you human beings have no business making any judgments about what's right, what's wrong, who's good, who's bad, because your human perception is way too limited. There's, you know, a whole other realm that you're not even in touch with because you're stuck in your human bodies perceiving everything in the world as real and that that isn't going to help you figure anything out so my stance is to admit that there are many things that i don't understand and that i don't like engaging in intellectualizing because for me personally it takes me into my head and out of my heart and I believe the best of us is in our heart. Mm. So, I, I like that. Um, even, and I would agree that, that one of the greatest gifts I ever received was that gift to just kind of push the, I believe button, um, and, and stop asking the why and just kind of be with it, um, the way things are and, and not have to have those answers, you know, like you talked about, I, I will say like for me, when I think about the ego blocking love, I, I just think back to it, it being a protection mechanism, right? It, it, I, I guess I would look at it more from almost a, an evolutionary viewpoint than a spiritual one when we, even though I think it's both and, um, mm-hmm. but from, a, from an ego evolutionary, it's all about protecting us in survival. And one of the things, you know, just having gone through Um, grief myself, you know, my wife and I have talked about this, that, you know, that's grief is the price we pay for the love we felt for someone. And so if our ego can keep us from ever loving something, guess what, we can never then feel bad and grieving for something that we never loved, right? And so we don't give ourselves permission. But then, you know, you just think, I I think of the Garth Brooks song, you know, I could have missed the pain, but then I'd had to miss the dance. Oh, beautiful. Yeah, that's, you know, so it's the ego is its job. And and from what I understand is to protect us and and keep us from harm. That's, you know, the ego blocks of fear. Don't do more than what, you know, you're capable of doing. Don't try to branch out because you might fail. 
and then you'll feel pain if you fail. So the ego tells you that's where the, I think sometimes the, I'm not good enough, or I saw in your book, you wrote many times where during your writing process, you were kind of having these thoughts of, uh, you know, who's going to want to read your book, right? Who the hell am I? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, you read my book too, because yeah, I remember sending yeah, it to you. Right. Those were the exact same thoughts that I was having as I was pushing through writing that book. I don't know if I shared with you the story of, of how I came to write that book, um, but it was because uh, of that, those exact words that I was writing that book. Because mm. I learned a technique. I read another book that taught me how to write a book and really it, it said a day. Um, but it was thinking of about a 30 or 40 page book. Mine ended up being just around a hundred and it took me about three weeks from start to finish from having nothing to having a published Mm -hmm. book on Amazon. And it's not, you know, you read it, it's got, you know, some typos and whatnot in it. And it's got some, it was very good. Well, thank you. And I, I like it. I'm very proud of it. Yeah. I'm, I'm excited to go back and, and revise it and update because I think it's got good stuff. But the Mm -hmm. point for me wasn't, it was one to get out of that perfectionism and get, and, and also get to where I would just push through and stop my ego from blocking me from something that I knew was good for me. And so I would have these thoughts one day and I would just, and so that's why I did it so fast. You know, I just had to, I had to get it out there, open myself up to criticism on it and let the chips fall where they may. And it was probably one of the most empowering things I ever did in my life was just ignoring that ego and pushing through anyways. Yeah. Congratulations on that. It's, it's one of the reasons the subtitle of my book is um, reject negative thinking to find peace, you know, peace of mind, regardless of what's going on. Can in my life, can I find peace of mind and trust that at some level, it's going to work out clarity, you know, that, that clarity to find a dream, admit a dream, and then go after it with the clarity of love coming through and guiding it and connection that our relationships can be love driven and not fear driven. Mm. That all requires um, dissolving or or reducing the influence of the ego. And you're absolutely right. The ego is hardwired because we're basically animals, you know, with a big brain. And so that uh, primitive part of the brain is constantly sending fear signals because that was its job to help us survive. And unfortunately, sometimes we, those fear signals get sent for what seems like an emotional threat, you know, is gonna feel like a a physical survival threat, you know, because we get a little confused in our brains. The other, and that that gives us a very self-forgiving, self-caring way of looking at our fears and our resentments. It's like, oh yeah, that part of my brain is perceiving that as a threat. And you know, that's what it's designed for. It's designed to do that. Now, what is my choice about how I wanna move forward given that I'm feeling that way? And in addition to the survival hardwired ones, there's the ones that I grew up with, which are the survival in my family, survival in this human world emotionally. So when I, Uh, couldn't get love in any of the traditional means in my family, you know, through my parents and so on, or perceived I couldn't, then I started overachieving in school. 
and I and that was a survival mechanism. I needed to give myself a feeling of worth. And so getting good grades did that for me. Mm. So these survival mechanisms, when I finally looked at my perfectionism and my overworking, I mean, I had a major issue with overworking. Did you ever, um, did you, I'm sorry to interrupt, ahead. you know, I learned so much doing these and see my own behavior in so many of these conversations too. Um, I'm curious, your need, your push for getting good grades, did that ever lead you to doing things like cheating to get good grades? No, no. Because no? I, for me, it did. You know, I had that mm. same, I see it now. I don't know if you've ever read the book by Carol Dweck, uh, Mindset, The New Psychology of Success. I know her work real well. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that book I, I list is mm -hmm. one of the one top books to change my life. I re mm -hmm. listened to it about probably four or five years ago. And I was so much stuck in that fixed mindset, you know, and had to get these, it was all about grades for me. And probably, you know, I never really thought about why I needed to have perfect grades or at least high grades, but mm -hmm. it pushed because I had that. It was more about getting a grade than it was about learning. Um, and the grade for the grade sake. So for me, you know, since it didn't matter about learning, cheating, certainly if I needed to cheat in order to get a good grade, I, I didn't mind doing that back then. Mm -hmm. So uh, sorry yeah. to kind of take well, us off the rails, but I was just, I, I saw a correlation. I wanted to explore it a little sure. bit. With you. And um, Carol Dweck, it's Carol, isn't it? Yes. D-W-E-C-K. Yep. She is a, a highly respected researcher. And um, so uh, her work is very impressive. So uh, we were talking about survival strategies and um, this idea that the, you know, the overworking would somehow bring me the love that I wanted and needed so badly. Well, later when I was able to look at the overwork and it was kicking my ass and I, I was having chronic pain and, you know, really having consequences with it, and I was in recovery, so I wasn't using any substances or sexing to douse those uh, effects of stress. Um, it really helped me to see that that survival strategy had protected me as a young girl and a young woman, because it did give me, even if it was, quote, a false sense of self-worth, it did give me a sense of self-worth. And so... I could look at myself with a loving, patient, kind, you know, instead of the self-talk that I had, which is what the hell's wrong with you? Why are you so stressed all the time? Why do you keep over committing? What the, you know, when I did my first, you know, in AA, they have a, a, 12, a fourth step, which is an inventory. And you look at your, um, how your ego is beating up on you basically. And what I learned in that first one was my self-talk was absolutely brutal. Mm -hmm. And when I saw that, I realized that I could change it. And so this is what I wanted to talk about in the rest of the time is some of the ways that we can uh, change our uh, negative thinking. And, and it's really why I wrote the book. And what it does is reconnects us with the love. Now, ironically, in my experience, they say, um, we don't live in the problem. In other words, oh, it's so awful that I'm perfectionistic or it's so awful that I'm dysfunctional in relationships. We live, instead of in the problem, we live in the solution. Now that word solution is a little tricky because 
in my experience, the solution does not come by me banging my head against the problem and trying to fix it through my intellect, mm. which is what I tried to do all my life. So I would fiddle with my calendar and try to do this and that to not overwork. But essentially something inside of me had to change to give me um, something mysterious, a psychic change or a, a true loving desire to take better care of myself. And so when I say live in the solution, it means, and all my 50 strategies are this, not banging your head against the problem, but filling up your, what I call your, your love bank, you know, mm. letting the love in. Because if you take that original image of the person with the blocked up heart and you stream love into that being through other people, through spiritual practice, through cognitive restructuring, through energy work, that love coming in or that positive energy dissolves all the blockages to love. And then the heart becomes more clear and we can not only receive love from others, but we can give love to others. So part of the solution to healing the influence or re reducing the influence of our ego is to stream loving power into our lives. So. I, I have three different ways, um, three different categories, really. I mean, originally, it's the cognitive restructuring, which are the cognitive strategies. And you mentioned Carol Dweck. And in the early days, it was uh, feel, Feeling Good or Feel Good by David Burns. It was basically, you notice your negative thought. You stand back from it and say, now, do I have to continue believing that? And what would be... Where did I learn it? Okay, is that true now? Do I still have to perform and get good grades to be safe and happy? Is that, mm. That's absolutely not true now. It's just an old broken record <laughs> that got programmed into my brain. So one of the um, cognitive strategies, and I put it in my book because it is so powerful, and it it's a little... Um, complex, but I wanted to measure uh, mention it because I think your listeners would um, find it useful, is the work by Byron Katie. It's B-Y-R-O-N-K-A-T-I-E. And she uh, has a system called, Is It True? And she basically has you take a belief that's going through your head again and again. And usually the belief has the word should in it because, right, the <laughs> ego tells us things should be different. Yeah, we should so all the, over ourselves. That's right. <laughs> so uh, in the book, I use the example of my business partner had cancer and she was recovering from it. And we were, we had a huge schedule and she was still working really hard. So my whispered lie was she should not work so hard because uh, she's going to die. And what Byron Katie says is here, there are four questions. Number one, is it true? And you know, at first I said, yes, it's true. And then she says, is it really true? And then I thought, well, how do I know what the future is? How do I know what's gonna make her sick or better? Who am I to think I know? And that opened it up a little bit. And then she has you take the statement, my, my business partner shouldn't work so much and um, 
ask myself, how would, how would my life be better if I didn't believe that? Whoa, what a question, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I will uh, say that I, I just recently discovered this year, Byron Katie, through listening mm -hmm. to a podcast, and I have read now a couple of her books, and the work that she does, what you're describing is so powerful if you, if you do it and do it authentically. And um, so, yeah, keep going. Cause I think yeah. it's really great stuff for, to, to reinforce what I'm doing, but I think, you know, other people can learn from it as well. Right. So then she goes, you know, when I asked myself, how would it like my life be better if I did not believe this, you know, well, I would, not be worrying about my business partner. I'd be more relaxed. I wouldn't be running around trying to do things for her because I was scared she'd, you know, burn out, et cetera, et cetera. Then she has you turn the belief around. And I went to two days of training with her and um, her whole training was her demonstrating how to do this with individuals from the audience. And it's quite artful how she leads a person through the turnarounds and it's a little complex. I do give examples in my book and uh, the example I gave, I sent to her and she did approve my use of it. But ultimately you turn it around. So a, you know, my partner should not work so hard. Well, my partner should work so hard. That's a, a turnaround, a flip. And then she says, now how might that be true or truer than my original statement? Well. Maybe she should work so hard because she loves her work. She's not sure how long she'll live. It's fulfilling her. Who am I to say it's burning her out? I don't have a crystal ball. You know? yeah. So her whole process uh, loosens up those whispered lies. So I wanted to mention that, um, you know, the obvious one that everyone's reading about all the time for cognitive reprogramming is gratitude and appreciation. Oh, when yes. we when we make those gratitude lists and train our brains to look for what's right in the world instead of what's wrong, what's good in our lives instead of what's bad, it does reprogram those neural pathways. And the other obvious one is affirmations. You know, when I went through my third divorce, I wrote on a little sticky note, thank you. I used my higher power or God, but you can make it thank you, love, for bringing me a half, happy, healthy marriage. Because after three divorces, I thought that was impossible. And I wrote that affirmation and I had it on my mirror and I did the visualization as the law of attraction suggests and all the other wonderful teachings on um, positive thinking. And lo and behold, after I divorced my third husband a year later, I met Peter, who's now my fourth husband for 31 years. And it's the best thing that ever happened to well, me. That's awesome. And, and I think it all fits together. If you're all right, I just, I wanted sure. to ask you, that must've been the, the third divorce. Was that the lowest point? Um, <laughs> you know, cause I guess what I'm looking for here is that movement from where you were to changing the direction and then kind of where you're at today. I think that would be, yeah. that journey is so informative for, for me, especially, you know, just sure. where, where was that low point? How did you recognize it or decide to make some change? And then what's been the progress of that? Mm -hmm. It was when I was sleeping around on my third husband less than a year after I married him. 
I thought to myself, what in the hell is wrong with this picture? And I went for help to a psychologist. And, and it's almost a little, um, for people who don't have addictions, you know, like, I mean, I had, you know, early alcoholism and substance abuse, but it could be true with codependence also. I had codependency. I was sick in terms of relationships and I was. Define that real quick, codependency. It is when I'm only happy if you are. My own self-care comes out second in terms of making sure the other person is happy. It's its own addiction. I think you described that as one, the martyr, and then there was another word I can't remember. Yeah, the, the caretaker. Yes, yeah, yeah. Right. 12-step programs are very good for that. The Al-Anon program is for people who are in, in love or have children who are dysfunctioning, and it, it doesn't have to be with substance abuse. So that bottom, quote unquote, that's a very personal thing. I was so grossed out by myself that I needed help. And I got, I guess I had to admit that I all, everything I tried, getting a PhD, trying to find the perfect marriage, um, being quote, good looking, you know, none of those things were making me happy. And so I think I finally just was worn down emotionally. It was the emotional pain for me that I couldn't find love really that sent me to that psychologist who sent me to a 12-step program that the 12 steps, it's a very uh, guided with a, a sponsor system for overcoming the ego and living from your true self. Yeah. So you started this journey. I don't even know if I, would you call it a journey of recovery or just a journey and a practice mm -hmm. of, of living? Um, mm -hmm. I don't know, a happy life. Define happiness as just kind of like an innate ability to, I, I'm working with a gal, I, I will be introducing you, 20th episode with, with her. She owns a company with their partner called Experience Happiness, and they created the happiness practice. Mm -hmm. She defines happiness, they define happiness as the innate ability to locate and cultivate your serenity and excitement for life, regardless of outside circumstances. Oh. That's beautiful. Yeah. And, sh and they've created the happiness practice is a six month or they've just created a six week program, fast track program to start teaching people how to create and cultivate, locate and cultivate their innate happiness. Um, Wonderful. Which is love. Yeah. Is yeah. And living from that place as much as possible. I, I wanted to say that the ego and the negative thoughts and the fear and so on, I don't believe we're ever completely free of them because we have our brains that are feeding us things. What we do have is a choice. And as we practice more and more and go through this, a, a process of learning to reject the ego, the negative thinking, the limited thinking, to, and then to replace it with, and, and I, you know, my first examples were with cognitive, more cognitive strategies for replacing the negative thoughts with more positive ones. But there are also, um, I found spiritual practices extremely, extremely helpful. And they don't have, well, if you have a, a functioning religion in your life, that's a fabulous thing. And I would use that um, to flow 
love into you and allow it to dissolve those those whispered lies of the ego. For me, prayer is an obvious one. And I don't think I need to say a lot about that, except one prayer is usually not enough. You know, <laughs> The ego is whispering and whispering. And of yeah. course, a miracle says that the ego's voice is the first voice we hear in our heads and the loudest. Yeah. So then we, we just need to notice it and pat ourselves on the back and say, good job, you noticed that. And now we have a choice. What, what technique can we use to help ourselves find peace instead? I love that you say choice, and I think choice lines up really well with the other word that, that you keep using and that is true is practice. We have the choice to practice, and it's important, I think, that we make that distinction, you know, that this is a practice, not an arriving kind yes. of thing. You know, it's not yes. like we're looking for a, a destination. It's, it's having that understanding that we're no matter where you're at on, you know, some will call it enlightenment or awakening, you know, or wherever we're at on kind of that spiritual path and practice, wherever we're at in our practice of, of these techniques, we've never fully arrived because we're human. So we're always going to have these thoughts pop up. And I think one of the, one of the hardest things for me to, to realize was just, this is not if, if I want to be happy, it's not something that I just do every now and then. It's a practice, you know, yes. to, to cultivate, to locate and call there. I wake up in the morning, many mornings I will wake up. I went to bed and I'm in a good mood, but some, somehow when I wake up in the morning, I have like feelings of maybe dread. I don't know even what yep. they are. And I lay in bed and I do the practice. I do the kind of work. What are my thoughts? What are the feelings in my body? And and what, what I've realized is that it's never, if I want to be happy, I'll never be able to stop doing that. I can never take for granted my happiness. Kind of close and bookend this um, idea of kind of your journey in the practice. Because what I found really fascinating, what I can see tripping people up, and I, I could see it when I was reading it in your book, you know, you had the self-awareness to not allow it, but you could see how easily it could have gone the other way is you married your, your fourth husband who you've been with now for, I think at the time when you wrote the book, it said 28 years. I think you're at 30 now. Yeah. Um, so 30 years of marriage, he was a recovering alcoholic. Yes. And about at, at about year 20 or so. Yep. He started to consume alcohol again. Right. And you had all, you had to put all of these practices into practice. Initial response was to kind of externalize it and put it on him. Mm -hmm. And then through the work that you were doing, all the practice and self-awareness techniques and just following your own advice, you were able to, to navigate and really get in touch with you in this and focus on you rather than him. And that kind of changed things, didn't it? Yes. That's a really helpful, broad principle that when I'm putting my energy out there at the world and how it should be different and the people and the places and the things, I'm not going to solve anything. The uh, practice that we do is internal. It's with ourselves. And it, it might be of that cognitive nature, and it could be of the spiritual nature. I know 
I couldn't have gotten through that experience if I had not been engaging in spiritual study because it, it, what happens is when we decide that we wanna have serenity, peace, the opportunity not to live in fear and resentment, and we start being around people who are on the same journey and reading things that just come to us. It, it's like we send out to the universe, I want to be more uh, in touch with love and live from that place and receive it. And somehow we start, the right person shows up, the right book shows up, the right experience. And sometimes those experiences are really tough. Like when my husband started drinking again. <laughs> yeah. And I hadn't ever practiced the 12-step program of Al-Anon very much, but I since I'd had help from 12 steps, I knew that was a place I had to go. I used a lot, every technique in the book, I learned through some scary, awful, at the time seemed awful experience. <laughs> and then the, the helpful tools came to me. The one that was most helpful was uh, in that period was besides the 12 steps of Al-Anon and my consistent spiritual study of for me, A Course in Miracles and the 12-step kind of principles um, was, well, there were two things. One was the golden key, which I wanted to mention. If you, if you like me, have a default setting that says, oh my God, this awful thing is happening, this awful thing is happening, and all your brain can focus on is that awful thing that's happening, um, that's not going to solve it, right? Overthinking. Uh, so how do I get my brain out of that groove and into a place where it's peaceful and open and I can receive some wisdom of love that will guide uh, um, a healthy response in terms of how to take care of myself through this and, and how to be um, not a not make it worse, right? I didn't want to be in such a freaked out place that I would be pestering my husband and make it worse, you know, or ruin our marriage. So the first thing in any crisis is to work on your own <laughs> stuff, which yeah. means you might go to some of the cognitive practices, you might go to some of the spiritual practices. I know I did pray my ass off, <laughs> <laughs> you know, thank you for a right and perfect solution for this. Um, and I used energy practices also, but uh, the golden key is very helpful when the brain is just, I can't, I can't get it off this one thing that I want to fix. So the golden key is very simple. It's written by Emmett Fox and you can find it online. It, it is a little booklet you can buy, but actually the, the actual text is only two pages and you can find a PDF of it online if you just search for golden key PDF. And here's how it works, it's so simple. You notice your mind's thinking about the problem and you just say to yourself, oh yeah, I'm thinking about the problem. I'm gonna change what I think about. And then in the original version, it had you thinking about God or Holy Spirit or some uh, religious concept that you believe in. And as um, we've adopted it, over the years in recovery and other ways, you know, you could think of a, a peaceful scene. You could say to yourself a mantra, all is well. 
Um, there are so many things we can say to ourselves, but it's something positive, you know, and you say that thing to yourself. So I'm going to say all is well, even though it doesn't look like it. Okay. Then my mind goes back to its default setting. Oh my God, he's drinking. And then I, I'm going to choose to think about my mantra. All is well, everything's going to be fine. There's a way out of this. I just don't see it yet. And I say these positive things, you know, I'm grateful for this and that, whatever, then my mind goes back to worrying, right? And then I just switch it back to my golden key phrase or what I've chosen to think about instead of worrying. So Emmett Fox says that, and it's been my experience, that by doing this practice, what you've been worrying about actually does get resolved in a most amazing way. And with my husband's drinking, I have to say, this is not the only technique I used. I used um, Al-Anon I mentioned, but I also used um, a book called Radical Forgiveness. Really, I included in my book an example of the worksheet from Radical Forgiveness, and there's Radical Forgiveness dot sheets and so on, but it, it helped me reframe that really what had happened was I was freaked out because I was worried that my husband who I thought I could trust was going to turn out to be like my father. <laughs> so I was led to doing more forgiveness work with my father, who actually was um, a vehicle for some of uh, sexual trauma that I had. Not a, not a, you know, you imagine the worst case, but still crossing sexual touching boundaries that had resulted also in me feeling unsafe, being um, promiscuous, and attributed to those unhappy relationships. And I had worked through that with my a new therapist and a sexual healing group years before, and yet there was another layer because I was seeing my father in my husband and not my husband in my husband. And again, there are no guarantees to these situations, but if we stick on a spiritual path or a cognitive restructuring path or an energetic healing path, and we work that meditation, which is one of the most powerful energy transformers, we work that technique and our other self-help, you know, self-soothings, self-care techniques, we surround ourselves with healthy people, the solution is going to be perfect. It's just when we're in the situation, we cannot imagine that it's going to be. But in my situation, A, I ended up letting go of a lot of resentment toward my father. B, I was able to, uh, my, my husband's drinking turned out to be also, the way he acted when he drank turned out to be partly uh, an issue of medication. So that was good. When he switched the magic medication, it didn't, if he had one or two drinks, it didn't, uh, it didn't change him. Here's the perfect outcome. He can have two drinks and not more. His thing was cocaine anyway, the reason he'd gotten into recovery. Now, not everybody can do that. But in his case, I had to admit that I didn't have a crystal ball and I didn't know how it was supposed to work out. But if I stuck with my spiritual practices, my meditation, and my healthy, um, I think, I just want to say that you cannot do these things alone. 
you need at least a therapist or a coach. And even better, you need a group of people who've been in the same, they've had their ass in a sling, just like you have, <laughs> whether it's codependency or, uh, you know, overwork or overeating, you know, those people have had that problem and they've used a system of tools that have helped them out of it so that they can have a happy, free life. And, and so you need to hang with those people too. One of the things I say is that many times when we're trying to heal, we don't feel lovable, right? All we can see is our flaws and they've been kicking our ass. So we, when we're with people who are healthy people and also on a path of recovering from whatever negative pattern it is, they can love us exactly as we are and we start believing, well, maybe there is that center of love in us that I could access and live from and would free me up to give and receive love. Mm. And sometimes that center of love is, we can only believe in it when we see someone else expressing it to us in a completely genuine way with no agenda, which is very hard to believe, you know, when we first meet people, but uh, finding a group where they've they've licked the problem you're dealing with and their loving presence in your life you know in in 12-step programs we have a sponsor and that's extremely helpful so don't try to do it alone that's another recommendation <laughs> yeah, i think that's really good advice too um you you wanted to get to energy and we're a little over yeah. an hour if you're all right for sure. time we can dive into that um sure Sure. And kind of wrap up on the that energy piece that you Great. were wanting to talk about. Because I think that is, in fact, that's kind of uh, an area that I'm really exploring now as I continue to become more mm -hmm. self-aware is, is how energy moves into us, um, maybe gets trapped in us, uh, moves through us, you know, but just seeing how energy is impacting our life. And I think you've got some good information on that. Yeah, it's the most mysterious and maybe least understood of the healing modalities. Um, you might've heard of the, the most common one that you hear about is Reiki, uh, where you know people kind of put their hands close to another person and they kind of stream this healing energy into the other person. Um, there's tapping, which is a technique that uh, it's best to be guided through, I, it, but you can just look up tapping therapy online. Um, I did it when my husband was drinking, I would tap in one area or you can alternately tap on your thighs and say, even though I'm terrified that uh, my husband's drinking is gonna ruin my life and ruin my marriage and I'm gonna be divorced again, even though I'm afraid that's gonna happen, I love and accept myself completely. And, and I added, uh, and God, my higher power, my loving power loves and accepts me completely and is with me in this, you know, and you tap as you say the thing you're afraid of, and then you affirm that it's gonna be okay, that it's all right. And somehow it's a mysterious thing, but um, the tapping, it, and, and now a very popular, um, 
therapy mode is EMDR, eye movement desensitization, and the R stands for something I can't remember. Relatively new, they're using it a lot with them. Um, with veterans who have had trauma and, uh, but it works for any trauma and um, one of, and it's energetic and it's a little bit of talk therapy. It's a, a very, the research because they've been using it in a military context, they've got all this research on it and it is gangbusters. It's very effective. I haven't had the chance to experience it myself, um, but I would say the grand, the grand master of all techniques <laughs> to bring us peace and happiness <laughs> is meditation. Oh yeah. And you know, it I, it's hard to classify because it changes our thinking. It fills us up um, spiritually. It fills up our hearts, and it changes our energy. And um, what's great, I only want to say this one thing about meditation. <laughs> you. For it to quote work, you do not have to do it for a long time and you do not have to empty your mind of its thoughts. And, and I, I'm glad you said that because I was going to say, I, I, I dabble, I don't have a like continuous practice with meditation, but I do it, I do it frequently enough. But that's the one thing that I find, I found myself, you know, at one point walking away from it because this idea of emptying your mind, I think is pretty oh, much yeah. impossible. Exactly. And I think that's the main thing is if somebody wants to pick up meditation, going into it with, with no real agenda other than to see what happens as you meditate. Because um, yep. I think once you start putting an agenda to it or you do it because you want to feel better, um, or, and it, have that expectation of it, then that just pops up all kinds of thoughts. And then the other thing I would say is you're never going to stop thinking while you're doing it. And that's not the point. I think the point is, is to just see those thoughts and not judge them and just let them go or explore them, but not do it in a, the biggest thing I think that I've learned is do it in a kind and non-judgmental way. You're not, you don't fail in meditation and that's, I think was the hardest thing for me to come to understand is that I can't fail at this. The, the only right. failure is to get angry about what I'm doing or feeling like I'm not doing it right. Right. That's exactly true. And I'm glad you mentioned um, noticing the thinking because if all these techniques I've mentioned, we don't use a technique and choose to use a technique to change our thinking or our feeling until we can notice our thinking and our feeling. And so there's a reason they call meditation a practice because what we're practicing is noticing when we're thinking and in a very gentle, loving, caring way, redirecting our thought. And I'm a big fan of guided meditations where they guide me in you know, focusing on my breathing or focusing on this or that, or they, there are so many online that are free. And for me, it's a, just a great way to, when I'm anxious about something, I just, and I don't do it every day, just like you, Jeff, yeah. but I lie down and I say, ah, this, this is the technique that will help me get out of my head 
and relax and um, not be afraid about this particular situation anymore. Yeah. And so, it's not just, you know, like sitting in some yoga posture or so, you know, it, no. you can sit in your chair, you can lay down. It's it, there's no, there's many different modalities and you're right online. I use actually an app on my iPhone called calm that yes, has, it's that. got a free version. And then mm -hmm. I think I bought the annual just so I wouldn't even have to think about it. And then I have access to a whole bunch of different and the, the guided meditations, there's different types that they, they have, you know, some for finding anxiety, you know, calming yourself and, and ridding anxiety. Some is for, uh, you know, peace and love, get, you know, sending out peace and love into the world. There's many different, uh, I guess, topics around their guided meditations. And I do I, same thing when I'm feeling super stressed or, you know, you know, and I, I go in and I try to do Byron Katie's work, you know, whenever I feel that way. And a lot of times just going into that, taking five to 10 minutes to just sit and pay attention to what's happening in me right now just has a, a super calming effect without even trying. That's so true. And you know, the research on, and there's, I, I believe meditation is meditation. So whether you call it mindfulness meditation or whatever kind of meditation, it all involves noticing your thinking and moving your thinking to a more peaceful place or focusing on something that will bring more peace. So the research on mindfulness meditation, which was developed uh, at Massachusetts uh, medical center. I'm not saying that right, but anyway, University of Massachusetts Medical Center. Yeah. By John Cabot Zinn, K-A-B-A-T hyphen Z-I-N-N. You can listen to him, but he developed and researched a course called Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction. And I took the course. It's an eight-week course and it's two hours each session. And I took it. My mother had died. I was still working on this. I was finishing an education book. I was working on this book. I was a bundle of nerves. And I had, someone had mentioned it to me. That's the great thing. You know, these little coincidences happen. And you'll hear someone mention the same tool three or four times. And then you kind of look up and say, all right, all right, I'll try it. <laughs> and I had heard about uh, this mindfulness-based stress reduction. And I took the course and it was very, very helpful. And it was basically learning how to meditate. But what I wanted to say was when you look at their research, now that they can do brain scans and so on, the um, their research is very clear that the part of the brain that's responsible for the fight or flight reflex, which is fear, stress, worry, that part of the brain actually shrinks as a result of practicing meditation. I read you know? that. I think you put that in your yeah. book. And I was fascinated. I did not, I knew that it was changing our brains. I thought it had more to do with the neuroplasticity, you know, the, the, those uh, channels, I guess that, mm -hmm fire in our brain and stuff. I didn't realize it was actually yeah. shrinking that. What is that? The, the Abdullah? Yeah, I don't know. But I don't anyway. know the reptilian. Yeah. And <laughs> so it, it, it reprograms, it reprograms also. But um, I, I think in closing, I just wanted to mention this wonderful um, idea of self-compassion. 
I think so many of us are perfectionistic with ourselves and whether we're thinking of launching on a growth path or whether we're on the growth path, there are times when we learn things about ourselves that are shocking or upsetting um, because it takes honesty to look at ourselves. Um, one thing I notice is that when that when we're in connection with a loving power, uh, I did not realize that the sexual trauma had happened to me for five or six years. It took me five or six years to be strong enough, I guess, in whatever the loving power thought for me to realize that that had happened. So if you're worried about all the bad stuff coming out all at once because you think, oh, there's a lot of shit in there, <laughs> don't worry about that. Because as you develop this loving self, this loving power, it kind of regulates uh, what comes out when. But the reality is when stuff comes out, uh, we're not happy with ourselves. And the first thing is to beat up on myself because it's an old entrenched habit. So this idea of self-compassion, I just wanted to mention the wonderful work of Kristen, K-R-I-S-T-I-N, Neff, N-E-F-F. And she has a book called Self-Compassion, but she has some guided meditations and she offers some on her website. And for me, they've been extremely helpful because we have to care enough about ourselves to choose to look at the negative thought and decide to substitute some practice that will help us feel better about ourselves, right? And feel better about other people. That's what happiness is, you know, loving ourselves, loving other people. So uh, self-compassion and self-care is another key piece of this healing. Yeah, and so important. So that, that you know, I mentioned to you before that trauma and we've, we've touched on that. And now this self-compassion, those are two recurring kind of themes that keep coming up in my conversations with many different people from many different backgrounds. It, it how important it is to process trauma with things like you talked about with the MDR. It sounds like tapping, there's other modalities, but then this self-compassion being able to change that self-talk, you know, that you had talked about and some of the terrible things you would say to yourself and we all do and all have to be able to get to a spot where, and I, you know, when I think about religion and, and you think about the different religious teachers, that was, I think one of their greatest messages was how important it is to, to really take care of ourselves, have that self-compassion, that self-love, because once you do that, I think you saw that when you were worried about your husband, it was a contraction. And as you, as you did the work internally, you were able to open up and that changed the dynamic between the two of you. And it created, I think, I don't know, a, a path or a situation that allowed for things to happen the way they're supposed to. Um, Right. And things just kind of work out, you know, but it, if we don't start with ourselves, if we go and immediately try to fix someone else, it, it will typically, you know, you just think about all those times in your life when you've sat back and tried to fix someone else, it ends up usually hurting them and you. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, love really is the answer, you know, yeah. yes. <laughs> um, it's, it's, and you'll, 
it's not like you have to get an A in all the footwork and the practices before you get any results. Because uh, one of the things we notice very quickly as we start on a path of um, healing the blockages to love is that little miracles start happening right away. Yes. You know, all of a sudden we'll find ourselves um, saying, you know, no, I don't think I can do that even though we've had a history of people pleasing, it just comes out because in a way we've been filling up our love bank so that we have the most self-loving and, and healthy ways of loving others coming out of us. And we start getting results very quickly in a surprising way, you know? <laughs> so as you said, it's gradual, but you start getting benefits very quickly. Yeah. Gigi, I just want to tell you how much I appreciate you spending this so almost hour and a half with me this morning, sharing your story and giving some really, really great advice. I've got great notes that I'll I'll put in the show notes with links to most of the to the books and people that you've talked about. Um, I think all those resources are awesome. I'll link to your book so that people can buy that and get that. I think it's a wonderful. It's a wonderful tool to help with someone's practice as they journey towards that personal growth and self-awareness and just becoming the loving human being they were meant to be. Oh, thank you. You bet. All right. So as we're wrapping up, was there anything I should have asked you that I didn't or <laughs> anything you we didn't get to that you'd want to make sure me or the audience would hear? I do have an offer on my website, which is gglanger.com. Very easy. I offer a personalized signed hard copy of my book for less than it sold Amazon. And within the United States, I mail it to you free. So it's free shipping $12.75 at gglanger.com. And I also send you a little PDF for a workbook so you can do the exercises in your own little uh, pages. So I offer that to you. It's a better way to get it than from Amazon, although you can get the ebook or the audiobook from Amazon. Gotcha. Well, I'll include links to both and then people can decide what, what's best for them. Great. Thanks so awesome. much, Jeff. Yep. I really appreciate it. Oh, Wonderful. You, you bet. I, it was my pleasure. I had a great time. Thanks for listening to the Hashtag Lita Podcast hosted by Jeff Connor. We hope you are now inspired to say love is the answer. Now go out and change the world. Can you tell me you want more?